0: Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor of the Bulwark, and I am joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker, who writes Eyes on the Right for Substack, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is Matt Bennett, founder of the center-left think tank, Third Way. Delighted that you are all here. I am recuperating from about with COVID, but getting there. And by the time this podcast airs, the January 6th committee will have begun its much-anticipated public hearings. And there are a lot of questions that swirl around these public hearings, not just what will be revealed, but whether it's even necessary or helpful for our country to even indulge in them. So, Linda, I'm going to start with you. I want to read you two different quotations. First is from Representative Matt Cartwright, a Democrat from Pennsylvania, but whose district Back Trump, both in 2016 and in 2020, he was asked whether he was going to be encouraging his constituents to watch. And he said, it was Politico who asked, he said, people who read Politico in my district will be watching. Most people though are just concerned on keeping shelter over their heads and doing the best for their families. And so he said he really wouldn't push people to watch one way or another. Contrast that With the sentiment expressed by Nick Grossman, former guest on this podcast, who said, sort of framing the importance of these hearings, he said, An American president refusing to honor an election, lying incessantly about the results, and scheming to stay in power is new. So, Linda, which side do you fall on? Do you think it's worthwhile? Do you think it's going to be a big
1: nothing burger? What's your sense? Well, first of all, of course, I think it's worthwhile. I do think that it is important to the future of democracy that we get to the bottom of what happened Uh, in the lead up to January 6th, what role, not just the president, but the president's men and women played in organizing uh, the mob that eventually broke into the Capitol. But most importantly, whether or not, uh, and I have my own views on this, this was an actual coup attempt. I think it was. I think there was an effort to subvert the will of the people and for the first time in history to not accept the people's vote rather that uh, that a new verdict. president verdict right that a new president be elected so i think it's absolutely worthwhile but having lived and worked in washington for a very long time i worked in the judiciary committee during the whole watergate period from 1972 to almost 1975 so i've seen this play before and i've seen how It has acted out. And I think a lot of people today look back and think that Watergate was such a watershed moment and that the hearings were galvanizing. And they were in a certain way, but not necessarily in the way that most people think they were. What the difference is, is that in the 1970s, the Republican Party took on the responsibility to go to Richard Nixon and to tell him that he must step aside. It wasn't that the American public itself was so overwhelmed by the evidence that they heard, etc. It's that the leaders in the party understood that Richard Nixon was a threat to democracy, that what he did was morally wrong, and that it threatened the future of the country. And of course, we don't see that today, and we don't see it most specifically in terms of having adequate Republican representation on the committee. And that is not the fault of the Democrats or Nancy Pelosi. It is the fault of the Republicans and Kevin McCarthy in particular, who nominated people to serve on the committee, some of whom were part of the conspiracy. So I think that we're going to get a big audience I think some people, those who are not, you know, addicted to Tucker Carlson or totally in the sort of Fox world view, will learn things that will be new to them. And I think we'll learn things that they will find very disturbing. And so I think this is absolutely a necessary exercise. But do I, at the end of the day, think that it's going to be a tidal wave kind of reaction from the American public. No, I don't. Matt
0: Bennett. So Fox News, of course,
1: is not even going to cover it, at least
0: not on their flagship channel. Brett Baer is going to have to scurry on over to Fox Business Channel and anchor their coverage from there. And so a lot of people think, well, the very people, the Fox News viewership who should see these hearings won't see them. The other point is that, you know, we did have two impeachments that got lots of coverage and didn't move the needle. What do you make of the argument that we are in an era of such impenetrable silos that it's impossible to move the needle of public opinion?
2: I think that is largely but not entirely correct. And I think that the delta between large and entirely is where all the difference could be made. Most people are very dug in on their views about Donald Trump, about the insurrection on January 6th, about the response from the Republicans and the response from the Democrats and the committee. And those people are unlikely to move in any direction based on what we see tonight or in the forthcoming hearings. However, I think that there are a small number of people, and I think Congressman Cartwright is, again, mostly right, but not entirely. There is a small number of people for whom, The details of that day just haven't penetrated. And when they are laid out, as we hope they are, in a very digestible and easy to understand way, then I think that could make a real difference. The other thing I think is, while the committee obviously has been issuing very strategically leaks all along, and various papers have had these scoops, they haven't given out everything. There is more to come. We are going to be surprised, even those of us who follow this minute by minute are going to be surprised by what we see. And I think those are the kinds of things that could break through with the very small number of very important voters who haven't made up their mind about everything already.
0: Damon, what should be the goal of the committee? Some people, like Representative Jamie Raskin, I thought, made a kind of ill-considered comment. And I have the greatest respect for him. I think he's fantastic. And during the second impeachment in particular, he was really quite genius. But he said something about, you know, they should use this opportunity to press for repealing the Electoral College or something like that. That really seems overbroad to me, considering that the issue is, as Linda said, the attempt to stage a coup and to help Americans to see that clearly. Do you think that is the goal of the committee? Do you think they will achieve it? Take it away, Damon.
3: I certainly don't think anyone should be pushing to get rid of the Electoral College as part of these hearings. I mean, how about a push at some point just to pass reform of the Electoral Count Act? That's much more oh, modest, and, yeah. and we can't seem to even get that done. So how about we lower our sights and achieve the possible first? I mean, I agree pretty much with everything that Linda and Matt have already said. On the one hand, we do absolutely need to get this stuff on the public record, not just in closed-door committee interviews that have been going on for months and months, but actually presented to the American people in a way that. Shows this is, in fact, what happened in the run-up to January 6th and on that day. This is the evidence of the president, President Donald Trump's involvement in it. These are the people who were speaking to him before and during the event and giving him advice on it. This is how he responded in real time to these events as they were happening, the things that he said about them While they were happening. All of these things are incredibly important to get on the record. That said, I also agree with people who've expressed a general skepticism that it's going to make much of a difference in shaping public opinion. I mean, in my opinion, I mean, I, like everyone listening to this lived through those events in real time, both the run up to January 6th and the horrifying events of that afternoon. There's nothing I could conceivably learn in the coming days and however long these go on, week or so. Nothing I could possibly learn that would be more shocking than living through them in the first place. I mean, we on this podcast had a couple of sessions of the podcast in the weeks leading up to January 6th where I and others expressed concern about what might happen on January 6th. Is that because we had inside scoops from inside the Trump White House? No, it was because we were watching what was happening and we had heard the president of the United States use the bully pulpit for two months to lie and lie some more and lie again over and over and over again to make it seem as if he had had the presidency and his wins stolen from him and that this was something that his supporters should take as an affront and an injustice to them and their rights as Americans. That's incendiary language, it's incitement, and so when it happened, it was appalling and shocking and terrifying, but it also was not really anything that we should have been surprised was happening at that point, because Trump made it happen. And then watching it, and seeing how you know the minutes turned to hours, as nothing really was done to stop the events... It will be shocking, I think, to some people to see some of the video footage I think they're going to show. On the other hand, if you watched the incredible documentary of footage that the New York Times posted on their website months ago, I'm sure nothing they show will be much beyond the horrors contained therein. So in general, my sense is, yes, this has to happen. We need it on the record. I don't think politically speaking, this is going to make much of a difference because if you lived through those events in real time and weren't completely appalled and horrified about what was happening, which was the country inching toward a coup in real time on television, (laughs) I don't see how anything revealed now is going to make you say, oh, I actually thought that wasn't so bad, but now I think it is. I mean, it was bad when it happened. So the importance of the hearing is getting on the record the facts, of the details about what actually transpired, and that's probably going to be the end of it, I think.
0: Bill, I can imagine someone saying, look, in the immediate aftermath of that attack, people were appalled and public opinion swung hard against Trump and against the people who did it and the people who enabled it. And let's not forget that on the day that happened, the majority of the congressional delegation of GOP voted not to certify the election. I mean, this wasn't just a bunch of rioters breaking windows and smearing feces on doors. This was a coordinated effort to deny a legitimate presidential election that also involved members of Congress voting not to certify. So it was a huge, huge, epical event in American history. And because of the nature of our media today and because of the nature of human beings, I guess, you know, people have forgotten or they've tried not to think about it and this will remind them. What do you make of that? Well,
4: I find myself in the position of agreeing with every previous speaker and (laughs) with the gravamen of the statement that you just made, which you managed to turn into a question at the very end. But, Here's the way I'm thinking about it. Politics is a lot like markets. The needle moves when new information emerges that is judged to be significant. And then the question arises judged by whom? I'm sure Damon is right that he will learn little, if anything, new from these hearings. But I'm sure. Damon would accept the proposition that he is not the average American voter. He's probably in the upper 1% of attentiveness to major political events. And a lot of Americans, for one reason or another, paid less attention to the details while these events were transpiring than one might imagine. So my guess, and it's no more than the guess, is that if you draw the Venn diagram of people who are inclined to watch at least the first session or two of the hearings and people whose stock of information will be significantly increased if they do and may change their minds or intensify their feelings as a result, I think the overlap of those two circles is a lot greater than zero. Uh, and so I guess I'm with Matt on that assessment. I would add just one additional point, and that is we have been locked into a 30-year cycle of very close elections, particularly at the presidential level. And so it could possibly be decisive if two or three percent of the electorate decides, you know, this stuff was a lot more serious than I thought, and. The Republican Party is more implicated, not just Donald Trump, than I thought. That could turn out to make the difference in 2024. So I think it's because of the political environment that these hearings are potentially significant. But a lot depends on what I laid down as the predicate, namely providing information that's both new and significant. If that doesn't happen if the committee has misjudged, then the impact will head towards infinitesimal. We will
0: see. Linda, you had a further comment?
1: I did. You know, I've been following the controversy with the Washington Commanders, the football team here in Washington. The defensive coordinator, Jack Del Rio, commented that he thought the riots took American cities in 2020 were much worse than what he called the dust-up at the Capitol. And at first I was shocked by that. And then I thought about it in a minute and I thought, you know, for most Americans who were watching the looting, police stations being burned, cities being taken over, that seemed much more dangerous and imminent a threat to them and their lives and their way of life than seeing a mob go into the Capitol. So I think one of the things that's important about these hearings is to explain to the American people why it isn't just that the Capitol itself was attacked. It isn't even the 140 people who were injured, the five people who died, the destruction of property. It was the attempt to subvert democracy that has got to be what is driven home. Because I think only when you make Americans realize this is the first time in American history, other than the Civil War, when there was an attack on the very idea of America, the very institutions that make our country a democracy. And that's the message. It's not just about the property damage, the terrible pictures, because I think most Americans didn't feel that threat. And part of it has to do with the fact a lot of Americans don't understand the democratic process. They're not deeply schooled in how our government works. So they have to be made to understand why it was such a threat to our institutions.
0: Matt, I'm just going to give you an opportunity here that you don't usually get, which is I'm going to give you an opportunity to praise Republicans. Do you want to say a word about Liz Cheney's role in all of this and Adam Kinzinger?
2: I do. I mean, rarely do we see actual courage among leaders, Now, political courage, to be sure, but to some extent, physical courage. These people are not uh, without risk to themselves and to their families, but certainly political courage. They knew that they were gambling their political futures when they took the position that they did, which was to defend democracy, to uphold the oath that they took. And it was an extraordinarily patriotic thing that they've done. I don't agree with Liz Cheney on anything else, literally nothing. But if I lived in Wyoming, I would certainly go to those Democrats to cross over and vote for her in the general election, because I think she deserves to be reelected.
0: Thank you for that we will take a quick break and return with several more important matters in the news after this message. Ever heard of data brokers? They're the middlemen collecting and selling those digital footprints you leave online. They can stitch together detailed profiles which include your browsing history, online searches, and location data. Then they sell your profile off to a company who delivers you targeted ads. No biggie, right? Well, you might be surprised to learn that these same data brokers are also selling your information to the Department of Homeland Security and the IRS. I, for one, don't want the tax man showing up at my door because of some search I did on my phone. So, to mask my digital footprints, I protect myself with ExpressVPN. One of the easiest ways for brokers to aggregate data and tie it back to you is through your device's unique IP address, which also reveals information about your location. When you're connected to ExpressVPN, your IP address is hidden. That makes it much more difficult for data brokers to identify who you are. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of network traffic to keep your data safe from hackers on public Wi-Fi. That's why I have the ExpressVPN app downloaded on all my devices, phone, computer, and even my home Wi-Fi router. All I do is tap one button to turn it on, and I'm protected. It's that easy. So, to make sure your online activity and data is protected with the best VPN money can buy, visit expressvpn.com slash differ right now and get three extra months free through my special link that's dot com slash beg to differ expressvpn.com slash beg to differ to learn more all right we are back We've had a number of primaries this week, and the outlook for the Democrats is a little bit grim. So what one of the things that's interesting about the results of the last few days is that in very super liberal San Francisco, where a few months back they recalled several members of their Board of Education for being too progressive, they have now recalled their DA, Chesa Boudin. So, Matt Bennett, I'm going to come to you. The Democrats are up against inflation, crime, shortages like that of baby formula. So do you think that the Democratic Party is getting the message, though, about the damage done to them by progressives?
2: I hope so. Boy, I mean, (laughs) if they're not, I don't know what uh, message they're getting. And look, voters keep sending the same message over and over and over. Democratic voters. They started in 2018 when they, for the most part, nominated moderates who were running against far left candidates. The ones where the moderates lost, the far left candidates went on to lose in the general election, whereas the moderates made the majority. And then in 2020, we had the you know head to head of Biden against Bernie. Uh, Democratic voters spoke very loudly there. And then time after time since the inauguration, they've been doing the same thing. In the New York mayor's race, they picked Eric Adams. Uh, who ran on a law and order message. They voted overwhelmingly against a referendum in Minneapolis to defund the police. And now there have been two recall elections in San Francisco, one for several school board members and the other for Boudin. And those were overwhelming. You know, if the Democrats are not listening to their own primary voters who are saying the far left is out of touch, I can't imagine what they think the general electorate is actually thinking. So. I actually found the Boudin recall to be great news, and I'm very hopeful that the party will follow Biden when he said we need to fund the police. We need to be tough on crime. We need to listen to the people who are saying that their communities don't feel safe and they need help.
0: Bill Galston, when Chesa Boudin was running for D.A., He promised that the tough on crime policies and rhetoric of the 1990s and the early 2000s are on their way out. He ran on um, sending fewer people to prison except cops. He wanted to get tough on cops and ending cash bail. So far, it's looking like California takes a long time to count votes because of the mail-in ballots, but it's looking like he lost 60-40 but is it too late, Bill, for the Democratic Party uh, to um, do a course correction? Certainly, it's too late for twenty twenty-two. It's not too late for twenty twenty-four, but it's going to take some work, <laughs> mm-hmm.
4: because you know, as the famous saying goes, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. And I think there's going to have to be some very visible course correction on a number of fronts in order to overcome. The impression left by uh, the events of the year 2020, which I'm coming to believe is a year in which the Democratic Party and its followers went a little bit nuts Hmm. and embraced a number of positions that uh, have come back to haunt them ever since. And this is going to take the kind of work on Joe Biden's part that Bill Clinton had to put in to change impressions after the disastrous midterms of 1994. As someone who was in the Clinton White House when the 1994 crime bill was passed, I am unrepentant. I wish we could have that whole bill back, including 100,000 more police on the streets and an assault weapon ban and social programs. Those were the three big legs of the 1994 crime bill stool. And we could do a lot worse than to return to that way of thinking about the crime issue. But for this November, it is too late. I actually have a family connection to the Boudin family. Really? Leonard Boudin was a friend of my grandfather's.
0: So Leonard Boudin is Chesa Boudin's grandfather. There
4: you go. So...
0: Chesa Boudin's grandfather knew my
4: grandfather, which will tell you a lot about my grandfather, uh, (laughs) (laughs) who was one of the lawyers in the Rosenberg case, not on the government side, I might Mm -hmm. add. And in my view, three generations of Boudins is about
0: enough. (laughs) You can quote
4: me on that.
0: So I'm yep. going to come to Linda, who I know probably is very familiar with Kathy Boudin, who was uh, Chesa Boudin's mother, who just passed away, by the way, on the 1st of May. But Linda, as progressive and sort of radical as Chesa Boudin is, it's not entirely his fault. In 2014, there was a ballot referendum in California that passed, and it downgraded the theft of property worth less than $950 from a felony to a misdemeanor, a misdemeanor that, by the way, was hardly even enforced. And so, you know, I mean, that was the voters of California themselves.
1: That wasn't these bad old progressive politicians well that's right but i think you know the as we saw in, in you know the blm protest in in 2020 there are a lot of people who think well defund the police let's take money from you know having huge arms and tanks and riot gear that the police departments were investing in, particularly uh, as part of the war on terror. And let's take that money and divert it to social programs or to social workers. And uh, let's see if that doesn't help. Let's go after the root causes of crime, which was always a liberal mantra. But it turns out that may sound good to progressives in theory, but when they start getting mugged on the street, when their cars start being carjacked, when they feel that they might actually become victims to crime, they feel very differently. And of course, for most poor Americans, Black and Brown Americans who live in neighborhoods where crime is a much bigger issue. They want good police on the street, but they don't necessarily want fewer police on the street. They want the police there to protect them. And when they object to the police presence, it's usually because they believe the police are not doing a good job protecting them. They're doing more to harass them, et cetera. So I wasn't terribly surprised at this, but I mean, what a stunning rebuke. I mean, this isn't as if this happened, you know, in Peoria or someplace. This happened in San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. Mona, you and I both remember the term San Francisco Democrat. Yeah. You know, it had a certain (laughs) meaning. It meant the far left of the Democratic Party. So for this to happen there, I think it really is a shot across the bow of the progressives within the Democratic Party. You know, maybe they want to just be radical and maybe they believe in some sort of dialectic in which things have to get worse, you know, in order to get better but they're not going to win elections by not being tougher on crimes. Americans care about crime. It affects them. They worry about it. And Democrats have got to change their image with the American people if they're going to be trusted on the crime issue.
0: As one woman, San Francisco voter, told the New York Times, I guess I'm not as liberal as I thought, exactly along the lines of what you're saying. So, uh, Damon, arguably, it isn't just crime. It is also the positions that Democrats have staked out for themselves on education have also really been damaging. So Rui Teixeira has data showing that Democrats are losing Asian voters in droves, Hispanic voters, large segments. And some of the things that are harming them, for example, with Asian voters are their stances against gifted and talented programs, they moved to, you know, make uh, admission to a magnet school in San Francisco by lottery instead of by performance on a test. They kept the schools closed during the pandemic for the longest time while busily renaming them. So those also are issues that are Hurting uh, the Democratic Party, so respond to that if you like. But I also would be curious to hear your views if you have them on um, the idea of fusion voting, which is a reform that's getting a certain amount of attention now. That you could, you know, nominate somebody on more than one slate, more than one ticket, and provide an opportunity for more moderates. There's a move in New Jersey. To challenge the law that forbids other parties from nominating people. So the moderate party wants to endorse Tom Malinowski. Is that a possible um, way out of this cul de sac?
3: I actually don't know enough about that specific reform to know if I can commit to saying it would make a big difference to make things better. I do think there are other reforms that we've talked about in the podcast, like certain forms of ranked choice voting uh, that I think do a very good job of allowing moderates to punch at their weight rather than under their weight, which is the problem in our system very often with unipartisan primaries, it can allow kind of open jungle primary, and you get to actually see the people who can get the most votes in the first round uh, decide who will go to the second round. That can have a moderating effect. So I'm I'm more inclined to favor those kinds of reforms, um, at least till I learn more about the fusion idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then as for the rest, yeah, I mean, I feel like we're living – You know, this is not original to me by any means, but we really are living through a kind of constellation of issue or an issue matrix that is very much like the latter half of the 1970s with – in addition to inflation and economic problems related to that – to the surge in violent crime and a kind of middle-class rebellion against that uh kind of liberals being mugged by reality all over the place uh or tripping over homeless people while walking down the street and then on education as well as you noted the idea that you know you mentioned the elimination of gifted programs and tests to admit students uh this is, uh, you know, the risk of sounding a little harsh. It really is almost comical the thought that our public school systems uh, are failing to help students who come from disadvantaged backgrounds and have obstacles to excelling in school. And instead of instituting reforms that will fix that problem and help those students, the idea is, well, if we stop testing them, then we won't see that we're failing. I mean, <laughs> oh, <that's, great. laughs> that is not how you solve a problem. And you're, they're not fooling anybody by doing it. Because everybody realizes that's exactly what's happening here. It's not like we realized, oh, tests actually don't gauge what you've learned anymore in general. No, it's just that... They're tired of looking at the evidence of their own failure, so they want to stop doing it. And then they justify it by saying, we're harming the students by telling them they're getting bad test scores. Well, it's not the students' Or they hide
0: behind the disparity. You know, they say, well, but, you know, African-American students score lower than white students. Therefore, uh, the testing is at fault.
3: Right. Well, I mean, it they yeah, and they claim that somehow the test must be racist, but uh, no, I think it's much more likely that the African American students are coming from families and a culture that is giving them more of a burden in school, and the school isn't responding in a way that's effectively countering for that. And it's a huge problem. That's why it remains a problem and has been for a long time in this country, and it's one of the most shameful things about our country. It's the problem of slavery and its legacy and continuing racism in various ways that needs to be addressed. But we don't make those problems cease to exist by saying, I actually don't want to hear the bad news anymore. That's that's in effect what's happening. And again, the problem isn't just that it's bad for the students, but then the parents who actually have students in these districts don't want them not to offer opportunities to learn and excel anymore as a kind of penalty uh, to kind of lower the standards for everybody. And so you're going to get a backlash. And I think that is indeed what we are seeing.
0: Okay, Bill Galston, I see you have a point to make, and we will hear it just after this break. There's only one week left for GenuCell's summer clearance sale. Now, save over 60% off Genucel's most popular package at Genucel.com. Order today and get Genucel's Dark Spot Corrector to visibly reduce those pesky dark sunspots free. The Genucel Dark Spot Corrector uses special peptides to visibly reduce the appearance of dark spots, age spots, and yes, even sunspots that summer leaves behind. Cell has been family-owned and operated since day one. They know times are tough for all of us, and that's why they have not and will not raise prices on their world-class skincare. I use it. I enjoy their eye cream, which is very good on the delicate skin around your eyes, and their moisturizer. It has a lovely, fresh scent. Highly recommended. Results are real. Millions of Americans are in love. GenuCell guarantees results or your money back and sign up for GenuCell's best in class rewards program at checkout for an extra 10% off your order and complimentary gift set. Go to GenuCell.com slash beg to differ, GenuCell.com slash beg to differ and enter beg to differ at checkout for extra summer savings. And right now, Every most popular package includes GenuCell's immediate effects for results in as little as 12 hours. Go to GenuCell.com slash beg to differ. GenuCell.com slash beg to differ. Okay, Bill, over to you. What was on your mind?
4: Yes, this seems to be my afternoon for personal notes.
0: Uh,
4: (laughs) I was actually in San Francisco in 1984 on the receiving end of Gene Kirkpatrick's famous speech about <laughs> San Francisco Democrats. Uh, I was a senior official in Walter Mondale's presidential campaign yep, and got to witness uh, the famous march through the San Francisco streets, led by the never-to-be-forgotten uh, Sister Boom Boom. Uh, and again, <laughs> that backdrop... I can say that for the first time in my adult life, I am proud to stand with San Francisco's Democrats. If has <laughs> been ein San Francisco Democrat. <laughs> okay.
0: okay. Well, just adding to the troubles that the Democratic Party has. <gasps>
1: We have to talk
0: about yeah. There's even more. We have to talk about the issue that uh, is out there, and everybody's sort of you know mumbling about it, but it's kind of sub rosa, namely that's the 2024 race and Joe Biden's age. So Jeff Greenfield, Bill, you alerted me to Jeff Greenfield has a piece about this. It was very good. He, you know, he said, I'm just a few months younger than Biden, so I know whereof I speak. This is a big problem. And the fact is, and I'm going to turn to you first, Matt Bennett. The problem is that Joe Biden is widely seen as the only Democrat who could defeat a returning Donald Trump. So first of all, is that premise right or wrong?
2: I think it's wrong. I think that that is a backward-looking view of the electorate. I'm not sure that it's still true that the exact same battleground states that we saw in 2020 and 2016 will be the, the ones that decide the outcome of the election in 2024. If Biden is the nominee, they probably will. And presuming Republicans nominate Trump or a clone of Trump, I think that, you know, the blue wall will probably decide the outcome of the election. However, if our nominee is somebody like Vice President Harris, then I think we're going to look elsewhere for votes. And I think there could be real battles, you know, once again for Arizona or Georgia or North Carolina. So I don't know that it is certain that Joe Biden's the only one that could win this election. Having been there watching... Vice President Gore dispatched Bill Bradley without breaking a sweat in 2000, I can tell you that if Vice President Harris runs for the nomination, if Biden isn't running, she'll win it. <laughs> you know, We're not going to replace the first black woman in national office with someone else if she wants to run for president. So I think we need to be comfortable with that idea. I am. And I think we need to get ready to run a race that may not look exactly like the one we expected.
0: Wait, you're comfortable with running with her as the nominee?
2: Yeah, I think we have to be comfortable with her. I also would note that it's true she didn't run a great race for president. I think she would stipulate to that. But neither did in 1988. I was there for this. Joe Biden didn't run a great race for president, you know, either in 88 or in 2008. Uh, Al Gore ran a terrible race for president in 1988. He used to make jokes about it on the campaign trail. Both of them came back as much better presidential candidates the second time around. I mean, Gore lost by a thousand votes or less, and Biden won. So I think the experience of being vice president can help shape one into a better candidate for president. And I think she is more than capable of getting it.
0: Okay, a hot take from Matt Bennett. We're going to hear from the rest of the panel on this after this short break. Friends, the most important moment of your financial life could be right in front of you. Experts predict a recession bigger than 2008 may be coming, which means you could lose 27% of your wealth overnight. But the good news is that if you prepare, like the experts, you've got nothing to worry about because they're investing their wealth in hard assets. In fact, top financial experts say there's one that's safer than gold. In other words, it's one that can help you protect and grow your wealth, which explains why so many billionaire investors invest 20% of their wealth in it. I'm talking about fine art. And thanks to a game-changing company called Masterworks, you can get in for a fraction of the price. Despite the market turmoil They've already handed investors over 30% returns, and not once, but three times in a row. They currently have over 400,000 users, so offerings can sell out in three hours or less. But Masterworks is giving my listeners priority access today. Just head to masterworks.com and use promo code Beg to get started. Again, that's masterworks.com and use promo code Differ. Before deciding to invest, carefully review the important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Linda, what do you make of that? I mean the conventional wisdom is that she would be a disaster, that Trump would roll over her. What what
1: do you make of it? Well, even if it's not Trump, I think uh, DeSantis would. I think she's a very weak candidate. As somebody who was able to vote for Joe Biden uh, in 2020, I'm not sure I could vote for Kamala Harris. In fact, I'm pretty sure I couldn't. Uh, And so I do what I did in 2016, and that is not vote for the top of the ticket. And I suspect I'm not alone. I suspect there are a lot of people like me And if that is true, I think that spells a problem for the Democrats.
0: What's the deal breaker with her? What's the deal breaker for you?
1: Uh, I know this is going to sound harsh, but she has not impressed me with her competence. Uh, And that started when she was running for the nomination of the Democratic Party. And I started, in fact, I even wrote a column about her where I thought she was going to be great. I was all ready for her to do a bang up job. And when she could not in one of the first debates explain her own medical program, Mm -hmm. that really disappointed me. And time and again, when she's had to, you know, when she's gone to the border, I think she has flubbed that. I think she doesn't come across as somebody who is really serious and who realizes that she has to learn. She has to work harder. She has to learn all of the nuances of all of the policy programs that she's involved with and has to spend the time doing that. And she's good at, you know, little quips and stuff, but that's not going to do it. And I think it would be a disaster if she's nominated. You know, I'm not a Democrat. I left that party long, long ago, and I'm now an independent her policies would probably not be policies that I would support. It is uh, really important to know your stuff. And that was one of Donald Trump's biggest problems, even if I didn't object to him personally and to many of his policies. He was lazy. He didn't ever do the work to learn what it took to be president. And so I don't have a very high opinion. Sorry.
0: So Damon, I think a lot of people share Linda's assessment of the vice president, but I also know that we live in a world in which, because she's a black female, it's going to be perceived that if her popularity is low as it is, it's below where Joe Biden was at this stage of Barack Obama's presidency, for example, that it's going to be perceived as racism and sexism. And they're probably, you know, undoubtedly there is some of that too. But, you know, what do you make of the whole age problem first? And do you sense that President Biden recognizes the danger? I don't, by the way. Everything I've heard suggests that he is going to run. What do you think?
3: I really have no idea if he will. I suspect he probably will just because it would take a lot of. I, I, it just – when you're in that position with all of the, the tendency, the the uh, advantages of incumbency to actually turn that down, it's one thing if you're LBJ and you know that when you run, you're going to be facing chanting crowds of kids saying, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? And you say to yourself, how am I going to do that? That's That's going to look bad. It's going to be impossible. I can't possibly push through a campaign like that. Biden won't be facing anything like that. And so how he makes the judgment call that actually it would be better for me, for the country, uh, for the party – an American democracy given the alternative, if I step down. I, I think it's asking a lot to think that he would have the kind of a presence of Selflessness, mind, it's, maybe Yeah, yeah, presence of mind or or kind of prudential judgment rising up above his own self-interest to make that kind of, of a judgment. You know, I I don't know what to make of Kamala Harris. I remain ready to like her more than I do. (laughs) Um, I sort of... The irony of of her record is that prior to running for president, I would think I'd like her quite a lot. And I was prepared to like her in the 2020 Democratic primaries, given the fact that she was kind of a tough-minded prosecutor. But she did what every other Democrat did, except for uh, Joe Biden and then later Pete Buttigieg, who kind of shifted halfway through. She ran to the cultural left on everything, and that meant having to try to diss her own record. And She's never reversed course from that. She's decided for some reason uh, that uh, the way to succeed in the Democratic Party is to talk as if uh, the entire party is composed of sort of upper-class, very well-educated urban progressives. And that is one very powerful faction of the Democratic Party, but it is not the whole of the party, and it is not by any means the whole of the United States and the electorate. So as someone who is, uh, you know, hell-bent on making sure that the Republicans do not regain the White House in 2024, whether it's Trump or not, if she's the nominee, I guess I'm pulling the lever for her. But I think she will be a pretty weak candidate unless she changes up and becomes the person she may look like she might be around, say, circa 2018. But uh, I, I sort of doubt that she will, because the momentum, the inertia within the Democratic Party is all in the direction that she's going. And I think it's diluted and and a mistake, but there are a lot of headwinds going in that direction. So I think we might be stuck.
0: Mm-hmm. Bill Galston, um, referring again to the Jeff Greenfield piece, he says, look, the Democratic Party has not denied its nomination to a sitting vice president in decades. And if Harris were perceived to be muscled away, or, or if there were a challenge to her from within the party, this risks alienating the most important voting bloc in the Democratic Party. So, I guess I'm asking you a variant on Damon's point, is the party stuck?
4: Well, that seems to be the gravamen of Matt's position. And he may be right about that. But I think a little bit of history is instructive here. I'll start with the Republicans. When George H.W. Bush was running for the presidential nomination in 1988, he got a stiff challenge from Bob Dole. And, uh, When Al Gore was running for the presidential nomination in 2000, I don't recall Bill Bradley saying, oh, he's the incumbent vice president. Uh, I should stand down and honor the pecking order. Not at all. And that was another tough challenge. And I'd forgotten which side Matt was on, but I was with Vice President Gore and uh, we were sweating up until New Hampshire. Nor do I recall Vice President Biden being ushered into the presidential nomination in 2016. <laughs> As a matter of fact, you know, he was pretty much told by Barack Obama that Obama was going to point his finger in a different direction. And yeah, that went well. And that, <laughs> well, but more broadly, the idea that being vice president entitles you to your party's presidential nomination has not been widely accepted by either party in a very long time. And that, of course, is not to say that the results have necessarily gone in favor of the challengers, but the challengers have been uninhibited. So let's be frank here. Were it not for the fact that Kamala Harris is the first African-American woman to be holding that kind of position in the White House, If she were a standard variety vice president, we would not be having this conversation. You know, she would be challenged and she might well lose. So the real calculus here is the one you just put on the table, namely the consequences for the Democratic Party's single most important voting bloc. And I sort of wonder how party leaders like Jim Clyburn would talk about a challenge to her. Would the leadership of major African-American organizations and major African-American politicians take the position that she was entitled to the presidential nomination you know, and that there was something illegitimate for another serious candidate to emerge? Or would they cool it? I don't know the answer to that question, but a lot depends on it. So I hope Matt is right about growing in office. I have to say that so far, I haven't seen much evidence of that. Clearly, Joe Biden was a much better candidate in 2020 than he was in 1988. Whether that's because he was vice president, I doubt, frankly. And similarly, I think that uh, obviously Al Gore was a better candidate in 2000 than he was in 1988. <laughs> I was there in the Gore 1988 presidential campaign, and it wasn't pretty. I could tell you stories about that. Uh, so I think that Democrats really need to think hard, examine their premises, Uh, They need to take seriously the fact that poll after poll after poll has indicated that a solid majority of the American people really do believe that Joe Biden is too old to be seriously considering a second term, which he would begin at the age of 82.
0: Which is older than any president has ever been, far less elected.
4: Oh, Biden, when he took office as president for the first time, was already older than Ronald Reagan was at the end of his two terms. Yeah. Yeah. People forget that. So I think that Democrats have a problem here. And my hat's off to Jeff Greenfield for raising the issue. I was just talking with a friend yesterday about the politics and timing of raising the issue. And I have to say, I'm delighted that Jeff went first.
0: Okay. Uh, Matt Bennett, you wanted to respond?
2: One quick thing in response to Bill. First of all, I was flying around on Air Force Two with Gore when we were going after Bradley. And it is true. We were worried about him because if you're not worried in politics, you're an idiot. But um, in the end, it wasn't much of a challenge. I think a sitting vice president, particularly if she were to get the endorsement of President Biden, she'd be pretty much unbeatable.
0: I was involved in politics, too, in 1988. I was writing speeches for Jack Kemp, whose campaign didn't go very far. (laughs) I hope it wasn't my fault. The thing I remember most from that race is, well, there are many things, but one of them was that during the primary debates on the Republican side, we had Pete DuPont, who was the outgoing governor of Delaware, who was running against George H.W. Bush, among others, and H.W. insisted on referring to him as Pierre. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds French. Yes. (laughs) Someone said of John Kerry. (laughs) All right. And we will take a short break and be back with highlights and lowlights of the week. Well, you may think that I am obsessed with Omaha Steaks, but I insist that's not true. Last night we had Omaha Steaks chicken for dinner, so that was excellent. I marinated it with a little olive oil and garlic and lemon, and it was fantastic. So you guys, if you want to enjoy the chicken and the other meat and the steaks, you have to go to omahasteaks.com and type Beg to differ in the search bar because they have a fantastic deal. Why? Because it's father's day and what do men want? They want steaks. Dads want steaks. So, Visit omahasteaks.com and type Beg to Differ in the search bar and order the Dad's Want Steaks Package for just $99. This limited-time package includes 16 mouth-watering entrees he's guaranteed to love, like smoky, tender, bacon-wrapped filet mignon, gourmet jumbo franks, and their air-chilled, boneless chicken breasts. And for a sweet finish, they also have delicious caramel apple tartlets, Makes you hungry just thinking about it. And as a special gift for my listeners, when you type Beg to Differ in the search bar and order the Dad's Want Steaks package, you'll also get eight free Omaha Steaks burgers. These burgers are full of bold, beefy flavor made from 100% Omaha Steaks, and now they're bigger than ever at a whopping six ounces. So, they are fantastic. They come individually wrapped, so easy to defrost and put on your grill, and it's just beefy and delicious. So, don't wait. Send Dad more than just a gift. Send him an experience he'll love and can share with you. Go to omahasteaks.com and type Beg to Differ into the search bar and order the Dad's Want Steaks package. You'll get 16 entrees and 4 desserts plus 8 free Omaha Steaks burgers. Omaha Steaks isn't just steak, it's the best steak of your life. Guaranteed. That's OmahaSteaks.com. Keyword, beg to differ. All right, your highlight or lowlight of the week. I will start with you, Matt Bennett.
2: My highlight of the week was the outcome of the primaries in California. As we discussed, I think uh, Boudin lost Uh, was very important, and another signal to the party that we need to get right not only on crime, but on the general question of whether the far left is bad or good for our politics.
1: Okay. Linda Chavez. I'm going to point to an article that appeared in the Washington Post this week, and it deals with a lot of the themes we've been talking about today, the sort of breakdown in our cities, crime, how the democrats are having to deal with this the article was called anger and heartbreak on bus number 15 and I pointed this article, first of all, I thought it was a terrific piece of journalism, but I used to ride bus number 15 when I was growing up in Denver, Colorado. It was the bus I took to school. It was the bus my husband took to school. We went to different schools. Uh, the bus I took to go to college when I started the University of Colorado Denver Center, and it went down Colfax Avenue in Denver, which was kind of the premier street in Denver. It had the cathedral on the street, at the Capitol, which is gold domed. That street and that part of the city has become an unbelievable hellhole. It is filled with homeless people and drug addicts and criminals. A lot of it started after the protests in 2020, and it has gotten much worse. And this article really details that in a very stunning way. And I think if we don't figure out what is going wrong with our cities, we're not able to get this under control. I think it is a real danger to the future of America.
0: Okay, thank you.
4: Bill Galston. Well, first of all, I want to second Linda's endorsement of that piece. It is a wonderful piece of journalism. And brings home some large themes much better than the simple announcement of those large themes in general terms possibly could. My highlight, or is it a lowlight, went almost unnoticed in political circles, despite the fact that it was front page news in the three major newspapers. And that is the World Bank, quickly followed by the OECD, is projecting years of slow growth and high inflation, which combined to produce the famous stagflation. If that turns out to be correct, then we're at the beginning of a very gloomy period for the global economy, which is going to have all sorts of ripple effects for the American economy. I think we'd better all hope that they're wrong. That the Federal Reserve Board and the European Central Bank and others managed to get this situation under control sooner rather than later. Because if we're talking about three to five years of stagflation, many developing countries are going to go belly up and will default on their debts. And we'll be back into a scenario uh, for the world economy that the optimists thought we had escaped for good. This is a game for very high stakes. And the Fed had better get it right, and Madame Lagarde had better get it right, and a bunch of other people had better do a lot better than they did back in 2008
0: and 2009. Okay, thank you. Damon Linker. Yeah, you know, I don't do
3: a lot of... um kind of media criticism on here. I think the right overdoes this theme a lot. And so I don't like to jump on it and uh, add to it, but I do want to highlight with a low light The coverage of the fact that uh, Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh appears to have come sort of close to an assassination attempt earlier this week. uh, A man was arrested a couple of blocks from his uh, uh, suburban Maryland home. A man was very disturbed. He had weapons on him and claimed that he was going uh, to Kavanaugh's house to kill him. That's bad enough in and of itself, of course. But if you looked at the front pages of the major newspapers this morning, you will not see a lot of coverage of this story. I don't think it made uh, at least the first-run editions of the front pages of either uh, the Washington Post or the New York Times. And in general, the story just isn't getting that much coverage. You hear people yelling about it on Twitter because everyone yells about everything on Twitter, but that isn't real news. That's journalists screaming at each other mostly. So this strikes me as, as an example of something that is a really pretty abysmal double standard. If the Supreme Court was within a week or two of handing down a major case, overturning a major conservative precedent And Sonia Sotomayor had come that close to an assassination attempt, it would be blaring from one side to the other of every front page newspaper in the country. And instead, Just mute. Uh, I think that that's a really bad uh, example of journalistic judgment. Not that I think that it really should be that big either, uh, but how about something in the middle for both? Um, I I really do think that uh, we should be doing a little bit better uh, in the media when it comes to these kinds of decisions.
0: Agreed. Thank you. All right. I would like to highlight a piece by my colleague, Jonathan B. Last appeared in um, The Atlantic praising Mike Pence for the way he conducted himself on January 6th and noting that if he had made a different decision which anybody would have been entitled to think he would have. This is me now, not JBL, but (laughs) based on his previous five years of conduct, you would not necessarily have predicted that he would have been so courageous when it came to the sticking point, but he did. He did the right thing and he deserves a lot of Gratitude for that. But JBL, adding to the points that he made in The Atlantic in his newsletter called The Triad, which goes out to Bulwark Plus subscribers, he went even further and he said Pelosi and Schumer ought to name a building after Pence and then force Republicans to vote on resolutions praising him for his actions on January 6th. So he said, look, you know, how many House Republicans do you think would vote in favor of such a resolution? And uh, I think that is an excellent point. So bravo to JBL. And uh, I want to thank Matt Bennett for joining us. And thank you all for listening. Our producer is Katie Cooper. Our sound engineer this week was Joe Armstrong. We thank all of you for listening, for your ratings and reviews. And we will return next week as every week. Thank you.